0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Renee here, and I have a quick list of four books with older women main characters. It is a character we don't see often. In literature, we tend to kind of romanticize youth in literature, and so I wanted to just call out four books that I really enjoyed that feature older women. The first is Women of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayburn. This is a book that follows four retired assassins, women who who worked as assassins, and they find out that the organization that they worked for is actually Out to get them. They are next on the assassination list, and they have to work together to bring down this organization that they used to work for. So these women are in their 60s and they are spry as hell. And I enjoyed every moment of time I spent with them. So that's Women of a Certain Age by Deanna Rayburn. The next is Patsy by Nicole Dennis Ben. We featured one of Nicole Dennis Ben's books in one of our boxes. And you know what? Honestly, there is also a middle aged character in that book. It's called Here Comes the Sun. But I want to talk about Patsy. This is a deep character driven novel. Our main character, Patsy, who is a Jamaican woman who immigrates to the United States and leaves her daughter behind in Jamaica. And we follow her as she ages. And we get this kind of internal struggle of what it means to be a mother, what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be Black. It, Nicole Dennis-Benn writes the most beautiful phrases <laughs> that are full of hearts, that are full of tragedy, that just carry so much weight. So that's Patsy by Nicole Dennis-Benn. Now, if you are a fan of fantasy books, I would like to recommend Pink Moon by Annabelle Chase and Tana Gray. This is a middle-aged woman who works for like the magical version of the CIA. And she has retired, but now that her kids are in college, she goes back, she's being called back into work, even though she doesn't necessarily want to. So she has to figure out a murder mystery that occurred at this gorgeous, famed, historical estate in Savannah, and she's being chased by a vampire. It's really lighthearted, it's really fun, and the organization that she works for is called Hex Support, which I love a good pun. So. That's Pink Moon by Annabelle Chase. And the last book that I will recommend that features an older main character is Witches by Brenda Lozano, and that is in translation. It is so good. This is a short little novel, but every chapter goes back and forth between a journalist that is interviewing Feliciana and then Feliciana herself. The journalist's name is Zoe. Feliciana was taught to be a healer by her Tia Paloma, and I really appreciate Tia Paloma because she is trans, and we get to see how traditional healers are women, and that includes trans women. So I really loved the inclusivity of this novel. Now, are the women at the center of this book witches? Are they just healers? Do they have powers? Do they just have ancient knowledge? That's up to the reader. And I think Zoe, our journalist, is trying to figure that out as well. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. And I think by the end of it, Zoe comes to realize that as well. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if this is magic. It doesn't matter if this is is real. At the center, you know, the journalist goes down to Mexico because there's been a murder and she wants to cover it for her newspaper or literary magazine or something. But that's how she runs into Feliciana and learns of Paloma. And there are some parallels in these stories between these two narrators. One thing I will note is you don't realize that there are two narrators. So just know that every other chapter skips. But Once you get the rhythm of the book, it goes so fast and it is so good. I just wish I could say more about it, but I think you need to experience it for yourself. So that's Witches by Brenda Lozano, and that's translated from Spanish into English by Heather Cleary. So those are the four books that I would recommend if you're looking for books with older women as the main character, doing big things and making shit happen. I wish the world knew that, you know, we didn't die after... Turning 35, we have full-ass lives to leave. Legacies to create. And I'm past that point. And I feel like I'm only scratching the surface on my life and what I'm meant to do here. So, yeah, more books about older main characters. I want to read about the the mothers, guardians, and crones, the creatrices of this universe. That's what I'm aching for these days. So if you've got recommendations for older main character women that you want to share with me, my DMs are open. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me is slide into my Instagram DMs. So I hope you enjoy those. All those will be listed in the show notes. Thanks. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new book that just released from Hanover Square Press called *Femina: A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It by Dr. Yanina Ramirez. The Middle Ages are seen as a bloodthirsty time of Vikings, saints, and kings, a patriarchal society that oppressed and excluded women. But when we dig a little deeper into the truth, we can see that the Dark Ages were anything but. Oxford and BBC historian Yanina Ramirez has uncovered countless influential women's names struck out of historical records, with the word Femina annotated beside them. As gatekeepers of the past ordered books to be burned, artworks to be destroyed, and new versions of myths, legends, and historical documents to be produced, our view of history has been manipulated, and women of the Middle Ages have been almost entirely written out until now. In Femina, Dr. Ramirez invites us to see the medieval world with fresh eyes and discover why these remarkable women were removed from our collective memories. Femina by Dr. Yanina Ramirez is available now. Pick up your copy at your local bookstore.
1: Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with Nick Stone. She is the author of several novels, including Dear Martin, Dear Justice, and Clear Getaway. She wrote Shuri, a Black Panther novel. She was an author of the books Black Out and White Out, a Spellmanite, she joins us to talk about her novel, Chaos Theory. Nick, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, actually. I'm excited to be here. And my first question
2: for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Oh, coming out the gate, swinging. Mostly, I think of feminism the same way I think of anti-racism. And to me, they both mean completely doing work that does away with any idea of superiority or inferiority based on gender, religion, race, background, etc. I think they all they all tie together and feminism is is probably my favorite one. Don't tell my co-author of how to be a young anti-racist. <laughs> but yeah, it's all about leveling the playing field. Simple period. Yeah.
1: And what is chaos theory about?
2: So Chaos Theory follows two high school seniors who in their senior year, really it's their last semester, their lives kind of collide in ways that neither of them is expecting. And we discover through their story that one of them is living with a diagnosed psychiatric disorder and the other one has a problem that they are not quite ready to admit yet. And those to facts about them, create quite a bit of adventure, we'll say, in their lives. At its core, it's about doing away with mental illness stigma. I wrote the book, pulled a lot from my own experiences as a person with a couple of diagnosed psychiatric disorders over the course of the pandemic, just recognizing how many people were suffering, but also uncomfortable with talking about the source of their suffering. And that source, a lot of the time, was, you know, depression, anxiety, et cetera. So I really wanted to create a story where it's shown that, you know, people can thrive no matter what they're dealing with.
1: Andy and Shelby are the characters that you speak of. And one thing that I loved was their relationship, their friendship. How it blossoms and it's not so much an enemies to friends kind of thing, but it's just watching two people evolve. How did you write these characters
2: to have a quote unquote healthy relationship? You know, it's interesting that you asked this because I think even the phrase healthy relationship could use some interrogation, right? Mm -hmm. Like what makes a relationship healthy is honestly one of the premises of the book. I think that with these two characters, the most important thing for me was making sure that they showed up as humanly as possible on the page. This is definitely the most personal book I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And having the opportunity to validate myself and my experiences by just writing these very messy teenagers who don't have anything figured out, like that was that was the most important thing to me. With regard to their relationship, I mean, I think that as a fiction writer, my job is both to write the world as it is and also as I know it can be. Mm -hmm. So you do have these two kids who have been through significant trauma, both of them, who have seen things that a lot of kids who are 17, 18 years old have not seen and who as a result of, you know, having to deal with. Big, heavy emotions like grief, and having to also grapple with just the living in a world that does not, that isn't necessarily kind to an individual whose brain works a certain way. Like there are so many challenges that these kids face that they see solace in one another, and they want to protect that solace, which I think is what contributes to their relationship. Being one that's rooted in respect and rooted in, you know, admiration and rooted in kindness, even. And Andy and Shelby come from a background of wealth.
1: At least their parents are wealthy. There's a lot of the access that they have that's talked about during the book. How did you want class and power to
2: play a role in how mental health is shown for these characters? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know that I actually thought about it through that lens. I will say the reason that they both have, that like, you know, Andy is pretty upper middle, like middle class to upper middle class. And Shelby is definitely like, her mother is, her father's a neurosurgeon and her mother is a bestselling author. And I think for me, it was important to show that you know, not all Black people live in poverty. Like, mm-hmm, like Blackness mm-hmm. is a multi-faceted experience. Like mm-hmm. you can experience Blackness in a myriad of ways. But to your question, I mean it. It does say a lot about access to even just good medical care, right? My mm-hmm. hope is that legitimizing the things that these kids are going through will highlight how necessary mental health care access is, especially for young people. And I hope that as people are reading this book and as they recognize that, like, yes, this is a young lady who has access to a lot, we actually start thinking about solutions when it comes to making sure that people who don't have so much have access to excellent mental health care as well.
1: Yeah, because I I think about, like, how Shelby will send a car for Andy and just oh, it's just this casual thing. But there is access. There's this access and this what she has in order to be able to connect with Andy. It's like oh, just send the car over, and you know you can come over. Or how they lit? There's a field that separates their homes. <laughs> These palatial estates. I I've had in the film ATL. I've had Nunu's house. Ha- uh, Nunu. Was in Lauren London's character. Mm-hmm. I had her house, the house that she grew up in, in my mind when reading these characters, just these yeah. palatial estates and how they just is just a field that separates them from being able to spend time together.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, I like like I said, like it was important to me to make sure that I was depicting something that's possible. And I absolutely hear what you're saying, right? Like because. Now, the interesting thing is, so Shelby is definitely like the richer of the two and her house is definitely bigger than Andy's. But despite having similar access financially, Andy's in a situation where he, his, one of his parents, at least would not at all be supportive of him needing any sort of, of mental health care or mental health acts or access to any sort of you know, even psychiatric, think, psychiatry, right. therapist, et cetera. Right. So like there's so much that goes into, you know, how we think about mental health, how we think about mental health services, how we think about who needs and who doesn't need access to mental health services. So, you know, with a book like this, my hope is that you know, like with all the books that I write, it definitely is one that I think raises more questions than gives answers. And my hope is that, you know, people will be moved not only to start validating themselves and their experiences, but also figuring out, like, how do we make mental health care access more? Like, how do we make access easier? Yes. And what was important when writing The
1: Parents? Andy has very interesting parents. Mm -hmm. Shelby's parents are an antithesis of Andy's parents. And just really trying to support their child. And I just wanted to know how did what did you decide and how did you craft
2: the parents of the story? I mean, to be completely honest, a lot of a lot of story just kind of comes to me fully formed, as strange as that probably probably sounds. With Andy's parents, it was important to me. I will say that it was important to me that one of them was very was supportive honestly to a fault. the point where like there was a bit of a haze over one parent's eyes about this young man potentially having a problem but the other parent just isn't supportive at all in fact Uh she's very hard andy's mother is very hard on him and i for me when i'm writing fiction the most important thing to me is to display as wide a variety of of people and experiences as possible right so with with this kid, I guess, I guess with chaos theory, it, for me, it's all about the juxtaposition of, you know, what happens when you have an issue and you have supportive parents versus what happens when you have an issue and you don't have supportive parents, right? So one of these kids has the supportive parents has had, you know, an extensive background, like they This is, she's dealing with stuff that runs in her family. She, her parents dealt with the same things like So her mother's mother was not supportive of her mother's sister. Her mother, obviously, as a result of that, definitely decided to move a little differently. So all of these backgrounds, like all of these pieces of background and all of these experiences have contributed to the way that these people are treating each other. Like regardless of what type of relationship it is, whether it's parent-child, whether it's friend-friend, the way that we all of our experiences contribute to the way that we interact with and treat one another. So with Andy and Shelby, the contrast for me is all about, this is what it looks like when you have supportive parents. And this is how, how it can look when you don't have supportive parents. It's hard to admit you have a problem when, you know, you're not going to have the support you need to deal with the problem. It's, not hard. Ho- I mean, it's obviously not easy living with a psychiatric disorder, but it's easier when the people who matter most are supportive of you in your journey and just want you to thrive. <laughs> so yeah, the parents. I'm really big on parents, and in YA novels, which makes me a bit of an outlier because there are a lot of people who, if you read a lot of the YA novels, some of them just don't have parents at all. You'd be right. like, where y'all, where y'all parents at? But like, my mama wouldn't have not been there. So trying to give as much insight into these kids' very different lives was a part of my aim with depicting the parents the way that I did.
1: Yes. And I think that's also important. One thing that I loved about Shelby was how she names what happens to her or what is happening with her. And when she doesn't want to say something, she doesn't say it. And there's not, oh, but tell me more. Wait, you've gone this far. Tell me. She trusts the people who she tells what has happened to her and, you know, her cognitive disorders. And she's also trusting to not have to share everything about herself, which was yeah. so beautiful to witness throughout the
2: story. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think if, if I can say, if I could like tie one word to this book, it would be boundaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think in writing the book and in, in, in looking into my own life, boundaries have been paramount because boundaries give you, they give you room to hold space for yourself, right? So I did my best with Shelby to give her as much agency as possible. She is the character who does have the diagnosed psychiatric disorder. So it was important for me to make sure that people see like, yes, okay. And she's thriving. She has a really great support system. She... It's doing well in school. And like when she says no, she means no. And that's an okay thing. Yes.
1: I want to say that Lennon, Mac Daddy Sinset took me out. I immediately had the image in my mind with, with a necklace and some Jesus sandals, those woven sandals at the barbecue. But. This person does not cook. But they will may bring a deck of cards,
2: and they're definitely bringing their appetite. They're bringing, my, and they probably gonna bring a to go conca- container. Hello, they got the, the container before they
1: got the first
2: plate. Yeah, I,
1: I love that line so much, and there's and I there's also bits of humor, which I think is so important. Like you can say, laugh at my pain. And how laughter is just such a medicine for people who are in pain. And I appreciated that there are humorous moments in the book.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look at like it's just true. Like even when we're going through awful, painful things, there's still stuff to laugh about, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think about how we frequently try to confine each other to feeling one emotion at a time. But that's just not realistic. Like as human beings, like we... I'm feeling everything all at once all the time, right? Like there's a thing over here that I'm happy about and also a thing that I'm sad about and they coexist. And I think making sure that people understand that that's totally okay. Like there's nothing wrong with you if you're feeling more than one thing at a time. Like that's a really important thing to me. Like humanizing people. (laughs) It's like, let's just hold space to be our fully human selves. and. Experience what we experience, and try to do minimal harm, and that's it, right? Like, how much love can we have for each other? You're a
1: Spelmanite. I am. What does honoring Spelman College mean to your work?
2: Oh, girl, these questions. <laughs> Being a Spelmanite to me means just moving through the world excellently, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, and and that actually is a little bit broad. But I know what I got from Spellman. Spellman is where I was introduced to Tony Morrison and Alice Walker and Zora Neil Hurston and all of these like literary greats who, if I hadn't read their books, I wouldn't be writing them, right? Like Spellman is Spellman is the place where I began to recognize how many lies I'd been fed about blackness and black womanhood over the course. Course of my life. Spellman is the place where I realize just how diverse blackness is on like in general, right? And so when I, for instance, I just I was just on a book tour and like I wore Stelman paraphernalia literally every night of the tours. <laughs> and the reason I do that is because I want people to know what my foundation is, right? Yes. So honoring Stellman to me is just continuing to do really great work. And then showcasing where I learned the power of doing great work. Like, shout out to my mama and daddy and also to Spelman College.
1: I want to talk to you about collaboration because in addition to the books that I mentioned in the introduction, we've also worked with Abram X. Kendi, who is so prolific. And I just would love to know what does collaboration mean to you and how do you show up as yourself
2: when you collaborate? Another beautiful question. I mean, collaboration is inescapable, honestly, is the way that I think of it, right? Like even even when I'm writing a book by myself, if I sit down, I write a whole story, unless I'm willing to collaborate, the story will never see the light of day, right? Like in order for, for a book to be published, there's editors, there are, there's a publisher, editors, marketers, publicity people. And even if you don't go that route, The minute someone else is reading your story, you are collaborating with them cognitively because your thoughts, the things that came out of your head are going into their head, mushing around with their thoughts and something new is being formed. So when I think of collaboration, for me, it's just like, don't resist the inevitable. (laughs) It's like, make sure I am bringing my best me to it. I think when it comes to what that looks like, like I know my ministry, right? You talked about the collaboration with Dr. Kendi, how to be a young anti racist. I had so much fun doing that project because I just, I only had to do my part. And my part is voice. My part is narrative. My part is writing things in a way that speaks to young people. Dr. Kendi is like the facts and the dates and the history. And I'm like, okay, now let me put this together in a way that is going to stimulate the mind of somebody who's 12 to 18. So leaning into the beauty of collaboration and just like, what a gift, you know? Like what a gift that this area where I'm not necessarily super strong, you're strong, which means that this area where I'm strong and you're a little weaker, we can come together and make like a much bigger, more amazing thing. And, I mean, me is the only person I have, so, like, that's the only person I can bring. And then that brings me to
1: Shuri, a Black Panther novel. Most of us at Feminist Book Club are big Marvel fans. We had a conversation about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. We could have talked about that film forever. How was writing Shuri,
2: especially the world building? Oh. Amazing. It honestly helped me get through the pandemic. Like I spent part of the pandemic in Wakanda Mm -hmm. because I was, you know, getting to not only live in the world, but also like help build it up a little bit more. Right. So for instance, the third Shuri novel, they take, they go into the Jabari lands, which had never really been described in detail before and which there were no like detailed depictions of it in any of the comics. So. We saw in the first film, all we really see of the Jabari lands is this like room that's clearly made of ice and there's an ice throne in it and there's this big, beautiful man, that man is so fine, uh, who is the ruler of this area, but you don't see anything besides mountains. So getting to go into this other world and describe what else I saw there and to have that become a part of canon was huge for me. And also, there's just something amazing about getting to exist in a space where there's no contending with colonialism. There's no contending with racism. There's no contending with like any of the things that were brought to the continent of Africa from people who just wanted to strip her of her resources. Like all of that stuff is not, none of that stuff is in Wakanda. I mean, now it is, but like before, and I'm working on these books for kids, like I don't have to put any of that stuff in there. So it was, it was a release and it felt like, it felt like getting to play in my, my own personal paradise. Beautiful. Yes. And for the last question, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy Chaos Theory from? Ooh, man, there are quite a few. It's going to depend on where you are, audience members. Just pick one that's Black-owned. Like, there are quite a few. My favorite in New Orleans is Baldwin & Company. That's a great one. There's one in it. There are actually a few in Atlanta. There's Madu Bookstore. There's Brave & Kind Bookstore, which is specifically a children's bookstore. There is 44th & 3rd Bookstore here in Atlanta. There is Salt Eaters in in Los Angeles. There's Mahogany Books and Loyalty Books. Both are in BC. There are quite a few amazing Black-owned bookstores that you can get chaos theory from. So just Google Black-owned bookstore in your area and buy from And I want to make a correction. The book that I mentioned
1: is not called Clear Getaway. It is called Clean Getaway. My chicken scratch handwriting strikes again. I didn't even hear you say queer, And I just want to make that correction. And Nick Stone, thank you for all that you do for young adults. I am a huge young adult novel fan. And I love how you write for young adults. And they're not just kids without bills in their name and don't have the responsibility that adults do, but that you see them, you write for them, you write for audiences who may not understand them or want to understand them. And chaos theory is just another gem in your your writing. Thank you.
2: I appreciate that. And that's it. Thank you. Fabulous. I hope you have an excellent rest of your day.
3: NEO Partners, Inc. is a Black-owned commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges facing urban-built environments. Our work and belief system is rooted in applied empathy and putting people first. Our approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. We make a conscious effort to hire local residents as community liaisons, staff, and consultants to support engagement in local communities. We hire local talents as interns and have developed an artist-in-residence program in order to build up young and upcoming professionals within our community. We are currently hiring for our summer intern program. We provide real estate development and business technical assistance to small business owners, entrepreneurs, and companies that share our values. So if you're a business owner looking to do things the right way the first time, it's time to do things the
0: NEO way. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh